city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. It's just a little bit after 7 p.m. in downtown Cleveland, Ohio. An undercover officer in an unmarked vehicle witnesses what he believes are drug sales hand-to-hand. From two black suspects, who he described as black males in their 30, in a 1987 Dodge Monaco. The vehicle leaves the scene, and the officer follows closely behind them. The suspects must have been wary of the undercover officer because they pulled to the side of the road as soon as he had activated his red light. As the officer got out of the car, the suspect driver accelerated quickly, turned a corner, and ended up going right in front of the Hall of Justice in downtown Cleveland. But the car was old, and the gas in the vehicle was bad. And as it passed by the Hall of Justice during police shift change, the vehicle started backfiring, causing numerous people to duck and run for cover. A call immediately went out that shots were fired, and officers ran to their patrol cars to pursue the vehicle. The suspects, realizing that they were being pursued, took off and jumped up on one of Cleveland, Ohio's freeways, and a lengthy vehicle pursuit going through Cleveland from West Cleveland to East Cleveland took place over seven and a half miles when the suspects exited off the freeway and into a nearby neighborhood, entering a middle school grounds that was closed, but the gates were open. The second suspect in the vehicle that ended up being a female took a two-handed grip as if she was holding a handgun and repeatedly pointed it out the window at the pursuing officers at the same time that the vehicle was backfiring. And more calls came out of shots fired with officers dodging behind the suspect vehicle as it sped down the highway going 90 miles an hour. Eventually, there were at least 25 patrol cars and detective units chasing after the suspects. The suspects exited off the freeway into a local neighborhood, and officers that were paralleling the pursuit set up a roadblock at the beginning of the school ground. The vehicle headed directly for two officers that were in roadblock position, and as they did so, the female took the two-handed pistol grip again and pointed it at one of the officers who believed he was being fired at and returned fire. More calls of shots fired rang out as the vehicle entered the school grounds. But now there were other police vehicles setting up additional roadblocks on the roadway that surrounded the middle school. The suspect vehicle careened off 
the one patrol unit and headed directly for officers Michael Brillo and his female partner, Young. Brillo and Young were concerned that the vehicle was heading right for them as the female continued with her two-handed pistol grip pointing right over the top of the dashboard. Both officers armed with Glocks unloaded through their own windshield and into the suspect vehicle's front windshield. Other vehicles containing officers quickly surrounded the suspect vehicle. Officers dismounted from their patrol cars and engaged the suspects in what they believed to be a firefight. In 17 and a half seconds, 139 rounds were fired, one officer getting hit in his trauma plate and going down. Both suspects were killed. Michael Brillo, during the gunfight, had fired 18 rounds from his Glock 18 and had gone to a second patrol car for cover, which was nearby the suspect vehicle that had been disabled. He dropped a mag and reloaded with another 18 rounds, firing from the right rear position of his trunk, then climbing over the trunk to over the light bar and shooting down into the suspect vehicle. Then amazingly, Brillo dropped his second magazine, reloaded with a third, and jumped from the hood of the patrol car he was on onto the hood of the suspect vehicle, firing directly down into the suspect vehicle. Both suspects were mortally wounded, and this began an amazing case. When Officer Brillo was interviewed by the officer-involved shooting team, he could not remember firing his third magazine. When I forensically interviewed him, he could not remember jumping from the hood of the patrol car he was on over to the hood of the suspect vehicle and dumping his third rounds from his magazine into the suspects. As a result of the 13 officers involved in this case, Michael Brillo was the only one to be indicted for two counts of homicide. So how does this happen? How do officers during traumatic shootouts forget such important details? With me today, I've got Dr. Alexis Artwall, who's an internationally famous behavioral scientist and consultant to law enforcement, as well as a trainer, researcher, and a clinician. Dr. Artwall is the author of one of the go-to books in my library, a very popular text called Deadly Force Encounters. And Dr. Artwald is a retired licensed clinical and police psychologist who's worked in the United States, in Mexico, in Great Britain, and Canada. Doc, I welcome you to a thread of evidence. Let's see if we can talk about some of the important psychological and human factors that are involved in such stress-inoculated events like Officer Brillo. Be happy to do that, and thank you for having me on the show. Well, you're one of my heroes. So, you know, if if you are a civilian, like a prosecutor, or like a judge, or like a jury who are triers of fact, or the media, for for sake, 
you know, you're going to look at Officer Brillo's representations that he didn't remember uh, firing his third magazine and jumping from the patrol car onto the suspect's vehicle and uh, emptying out his third magazine. And you're going to say, how could that possibly happen? The officer must be telling a lie. So how does all of this happen? How does the brain perceive and then regurgitate information? One of the things that people don't understand is that your brain, is a, although it's an extremely powerful biological computer, machine, however you want to, whatever analogy you want to use, it can do amazing things. It can solve complex math equations, it can put people on the moon, but it has a flaw in these kind of circumstances, if you want to look at it that way, in terms of the criminal justice system, which is that it has extremely limited desktop space. And one of the reasons that you see cases like this where people get indicted for simply being human beings is because there is a dramatic and dysfunctional disconnect between how the brain actually works versus the demands of the criminal justice system. And this is not anything new. This goes back many years. In fact, one of the ways I got involved in doing training is I was, uh, as a clinician, working with officers involved in shootings. And this kind of stuff happens all the time. They, uh, they do things that they don't remember. They have inaccurate memories of the event. I worked with officers who their gun jammed. They cleared the jam. They did a magazine change. They don't remember doing any of that. I had officers who during a high-speed pursuit in which they thought they were uh, had almost been shot and killed by the uh, suspect. Uh, during the pursuit, uh, they called their wife and their father just to say, I just called to say, I love you. And when the whole thing was all over with and the officer gets home, his wife starts teasing him about the phone call. And he said, what are you talking about? She says, well, you called me during the pursuit. He said, I did not. I was a little busy. (laughs) Uh, And he didn't actually believe her. So he actually checked his cell phone records. And sure enough, not only had he called her, he had also called his dad after he hung up from her. And I ran into him years later and said, did the memory of those phone calls ever come back? And he said, no, to me, they never happened. And I could go on and on and give you a a bazillion examples. And this officer involved in the shooting is a very typical example of that. And the reason is you can only pay attention to one or two really important things at a time. There's a, this is a very well studied phenomenon. And the technical term for it is inattentional blindness, where you are experiencing something, or you're looking right at something, or you're being exposed to very loud sounds, and your brain is telling you, uh, excuse me, we have very, very limited desktop space, so the brain is now based on the sum total of your entire lifetime experience, each millisecond of your existence, your brain is having to make a decision, what am I going to pay attention to right at this moment in time? Uh, Because it can't pay attention to everything, so it's constantly having to assess. Now, if you're in a situation where you think your life is at serious risk, your brain is going to say, you can only pay conscious attention to something that could uh, potentially be a threat to you. And that means, what is the suspect doing? 
and you're going to be very focused on that and far less focused on automatic behaviors that you are now doing based on years and years of experience. Uh, so people all the time are focused on some external thing and they are not paying attention to their own behavior. This happens to us in our daily life all the time. How many times have we been walking around the house, we put something down, we walk away from it, uh, a minute later we need to have that object and we have no idea what we did with it. You've just described my life. <laughs> there you go. And the important thing for people to remember is this happens all the time. Uh, you put that object there but you don't remember doing it. And when you find the object, sometimes that will uh, you know, jog your memory, maybe say, oh yeah, now I remember how I got over here. Sometimes we find the object and we are completely befuddled. We have absolutely no idea how it got there. We put it there, but we simply don't remember doing it. And the reason is that as you were walking around, you got distracted by something else, you were thinking about something else, You plop the object down, and even though you did it, that's not what your mind was consciously paying attention to. Because you can, you have, your brain operates at multiple levels of attention. There's your conscious memory, which is, uh, okay, this is what my brain is consciously focusing on right now, but beneath all of that is a whole layer of subconscious processing that you're not consciously aware of. Your brain is still doing it, but it's not appearing on your desktop because your desktop attention is extremely limited space. So uh, the officer in the act of you know, jumping from one car to another, uh, he has an entire lifetime of walking, of jumping, of moving. That's not something that he has to stop and think about. Same thing with doing a magazine change. Same thing with operating his weapon. That's what we call uh, automatic procedural memory. It's what allows us to walk around, put something down, have no idea what, that we do with it because we don't have to think about walking. We don't have to think about carrying an object. We don't have to think about placing something down. Those are automatic behaviors because they're so very well rehearsed. So, for instance, the officer making in the high-speed felony pursuit that resulted in a gigantic shootout, how in the world could he make two phone calls, take out his personal cell phone, make two phone calls, have two conversations with two different people, and have absolutely zero memory of doing that? Uh, so using this particular example, why would an officer, when his life is under threat, take time out to make a personal phone call? And I, I think we can probably safely say it's probably against agency policy to make a unrelated a personal phone calls not relevant to the tactical situation uh, when you are engaging in a high-speed felony pursuit. And, uh, I, and we'll never know because he has zero memory of doing that because his conscious memory was focusing on chasing the bad guy and protecting himself from a possible deadly attack, which it turns out was justified because there was a violent shootout with this heavily armed felon with a whole bunch of cops. Fortunately, the felon died and the police no police officers were injured or killed. But it was a very, very, very dangerous situation. That's what his brain was focused on. But at a completely subconscious level, I believe that his, his, his emotional brain was telling him, this guy almost killed you you may not 
come out of this alive, call your loved ones and say goodbye just in case. And that subconscious emotional part of his brain was directing this whole completely separate behavioral subroutine that because it's very well rehearsed, he was able to do it without consciously thinking about it. And because he wasn't consciously thinking about it and consciously paying attention, and because his, his brain was consciously extremely focused on the one important thing that he needed to do to make sure he got out of this alive, that... He simply doesn't remember doing it. And we, that happened. That, yeah. That's a dramatic example, but it's the same thing as you're walking around carrying something. You put something down. You have no idea what you did with it. No, that's that's exactly right. And, I, and I'd like to just unpack a few cases, some experiences, and everything uh, while we're talking here today. Listen, you are listening to forensic criminologist Dr. Ron Martinelli and my special guest here today, the eminent clinical psychologist and behavioral scientist, Dr. Alexis Artwall, on a threat of evidence on America Out Loud. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com. For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Back in 1983 with the San Jose Police Department, I found myself in uniform patrol and recently just finishing a rotation in the Bureau of Investigations. It was the day shift, it was 10 o'clock in the morning, and a radio call came out that a person had come home to an in-progress burglary. I was very close to the scene and with another officer responding in a separate car, we arrived just down from the residence and we met the RP who was the reporting party who was a naval commander at Moffett Airfield and he said there is at least one man actively burglarizing my house and he lived in a two-story almost a three-story Victorian residence right on the corner surrounded by a grassy lawn my officer and I breached entry into the front door of the house and announced ourselves and immediately we saw a specter of an individual and the second floor run across the upstairs foyer. We called out to that individual and with guns drawn we mounted the stairs. My partner was checking for a tail gunner behind me. As I mounted the stairs with him behind me and got to the foot of the stairs I saw the open door to a bedroom and I saw the individual there. And he was a white male, looked to be about 20 years old, with long dirty blonde hair and I called out to him San Jose Police Department get on the ground and instead of getting on the ground the subject went to a window took a look at the window backed up and unbelievably like on a television movie crashed through the plate glass window I immediately went to the window expecting to find a dead person 20 feet below me but as I gazed out the window I saw the suspect running away. We put out the radio call for more officers to respond. My partner and I exited the residence 
and began a systematic search of the neighborhood with other officers. No one found the suspect at that point, and so the other officers got back in their cars and left. Since this was my beat, I stayed in the area waiting for another call to see if someone would report a suspicious suspect. And 15 minutes later, a call came out from a woman who was the mother of one of our police officers who happened to be listening to a scanner and saw the suspect and gave us a great description of the location. I was a block away, so I was immediately on scene. I found the suspect and he immediately ran from me. By the way, when the suspect was in the house when the owner came home, he had yelled out, give me the gun. So we had reason to believe that the suspect was armed. I chased after this suspect on foot with all of my gear for about four blocks and only clearing the street mid-blocks. We cleared about 40 fences. And during the course of this pursuit, I lost every piece of equipment that I had, with the exception of my gun and my radio. Slicing the pie around one of the residences, I encountered the suspect hiding behind a storm door, and I immediately physically engaged him because he had nothing in his hands at that point. He tried to make it to a fence. I grabbed him, and we got into a hand-to-hand -hand combat situation. At that point, the suspect pulled from a concealed location in his waistband an eight-inch straight-bladed buck hunter knife. And we began to sidestep towards the end of the backyard. At the end of the backyard, I saw there was a three-foot fence. And my mind told me that when the suspect got to a tree that separated us, something was going to happen. And sure enough, when the suspect got to the tree, and we were both about 15 feet away, me pointing my gun at him, and him uh, with the knife in his hand, he tried to make it over that fence. I was very quick at that time, and I quickly got towards him. He turned and spun at me with the knife, and I could almost feel the wind pass in front of my face and I discharged one round I saw the impact of the round and for one serendipitous moment I heard my radio go off and an officer was yelling shots fired shots fired and I said to myself I wonder who fired their gun that's my story doc Let's diagnose it. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm glad you're okay. You survived that incident. Yes, I survived. Uh, but uh, let's talk about some of the psychophysiological things that happen when officers get in these very traumatic, you know, officer-involved shootings. Now, you know, I had been running after this guy for like a quarter of a mile. Uh, my uniform was torn. My badge was gone. My baton was gone. Everything I had was gone. In those days, I was using a six-shooter. I was using a, a Smith & Wesson uh, model uh, 66 stainless, which is a 357 Magnum. And I know you're a gun person, Doc, so you know those things make a lot of noise. Yep. <laughs> and so I would think people would think, oh, come on. 
You know, I've fired a 357 Magnum or I've been on the range uh, and heard a 357 Magnum goes off. It goes off like a cannon. How come Dr. Martinelli did not hear that weapon discharge? So I thought maybe you could talk about things like visual acuity, uh, you know, your senses and how they're impaired or maybe how they're enhanced. That both of those can happen. Uh, all kinds of strange things can happen uh, while your brain is desperately trying to sort out what is happening. Uh, in my uh, book, I, I t in my upcoming book, by the way, Deadly Force Encounters, the first edition is currently out of print uh, because the publisher went out of business. However, Lauren and I are working on the second edition of Deadly Force Encounters, and it will be out later this year available on amazon.com if you're if your readers are interested oh i'm and telling you book, let me say something here i'm going to interrupt you for a second yeah your first book is so darn good that if you are one of our team members or a listener to the thread of evidence and you're catching this program and you are in law enforcement or forensics or you're an attorney that is a go-to book if it's as good as the first one the second edition will be outstanding. Just wanted to give you a little plug there, just Dr. Ron talking. Thanks, Dr. Ron. The second <laughs> one will be a lot better than the first. So, uh, and in the book, we talk about, uh, you know, a, a bunch of fascinating cases, including one case in which an officer was ambushed in his patrol car, and he uh, fired three magazines of 45 caliber ammo the first magazine he emptied when he was inside his patrol vehicle he does not remember hearing the shots and i can i that happens all the time you hear it over and over and over and over again that people do not hear extremely loud sounds people involved in car wrecks will say everything was happening in slow motion and I knew that there had to be a tremendous amount of noise with uh, metal crumpling and window shattering. I didn't hear any of it. All I can remember is vivid snapshots, visual snapshots of what was happening. Sometimes people will say, I didn't hear the first three shots, and the next two sounded like they were being fired out of a howitzer. So all kinds of bizarre things can happen to people in these circumstances. And uh, basically, your brain is you know, desperately deciding, what am I going to pay attention to right now? And when you were involved in a deadly force encounter, what your brain is saying, okay, right now, you have a visual task to perform, which is you have to look at the threat and try to assess what's going on and decide what you're going to do. And when you, that, that's what we call visual problem solving. And in this case, the uh, visual problem solving is working towards saving your life. So it's an extremely important task. Just like you can't pay attention to everything in your environment and a lot of your own behavior all at the same time, you can also can't pay attention to all of your senses all at the same time. So your brain is constantly having to decide what's more important right now, vision, hearing, um, sensory, uh, how it feels on my skin, smell, I mean, what's more important right now? And we will often do things to try to uh, help our brain uh, pay more attention to one sensory modality than another. One example is if you're driving down the road and uh, you know driving is obviously an extremely visual task, 
what if you see something up ahead a complicated intersection a construction zone maybe something weird is going on with traffic what a lot of us instinctively do or maybe we're lost and we're trying to find our way um, and we're desperately looking at street signs what do a lot of us instinctively do without even thinking about it if we're listening to the radio we'll turn it off people do that kind of stuff all the time and you might want to say okay well how does turning off the radio help me not be lost or help me negotiate this uh, complex construction zone because what you're doing probably without thinking about it is your brain is saying now hold on here you have a a very important visual task to perform so I want to pay attention to vision and I don't want to be distracted by sound because I can only pay full attention to one sensory modality at a time and uh, this is why officers one of the most common perceptual distortions is that officers uh, don't hear very loud sounds because they are engaging in a visual task and not an auditory task now you might think oh well this obviously only happens uh, in a traumatic incident no uh, there's some fascinating research done by some neurologists Uh, they were trying to figure out uh, what is your brain actually doing uh, when you're engaged in a visual task versus an auditory task. So they actually brought people into a research laboratory and they gave them, they hooked them up to a functional MRI scanner which measures how hard different parts of your brain are working. And uh, as we know, we have a visual cortex uh, which processes vision and we have auditory cortex which processes sound. So as they hooked people up and they gave them an, a simple auditory versus a visual task to perform. So when they gave these uh, research subjects in a lab, not under deadly threat or anything else, a visual task to perform, as you would expect, their visual cortex lit up and became more active. But what somewhat was somewhat surprising is the auditory cortex actually started to shut down and become much less active. So not just that your brain is paying more attention to incoming visual signals, it's actively suppressing the recognition of sound. Because you have to remember, all perception happens in the brain. Your eyes and your ears and your skin are merely sending electrical signals to the brain. It's up to the brain to decide what do those electrical signals mean. Uh, And if the brain isn't uh, paying attention to those electrical signals, to you, it never happened. Now, yeah, Doc, let me ask you a question. Now, when the when your your basal metabolic rate rises, you know your blood pressure rises. Uh, all of your you know fluids in your body become pressurized when you're adrenalized. Uh, how does that impact us with regards to you know hearing and and, and visual acuity, uh, as opposed to? Uh, I guess my my question would be. Do we sense more in a relaxed state, or do we sense more in an excited state? Uh, I think we just sense differently. If we're in a relaxed state, uh, we might have a fairly broad focus of attention. Let's say that you're out in your yard, uh, you're not under threat, you're enjoying a beautiful sunset, and you're just kind of taking the whole scene in. You're not really paying attention to any one particular thing that would be a very broad focus of attention. Um, So you're sitting there, you're enjoying the sunset, and um, 
all of a sudden someone comes running into your yard and begins to threaten you, you will now have an extremely narrow focus of attention. You will completely forget about the sunset. You no longer are taking in the entire scene. You've forgotten all about that. You are now only focused on this intruder who you think could potentially hurt you. So it's not a question of maybe more or less intense. It's really a matter of uh, what is your brain choosing to focus on at any one point in time? Yeah, and a lot of people, uh, and I happen to be one of them, I've had numerous occasions, uh, we tend to, as far as our visual acuity is concerned, you you know, you can lose your, your depth perception, your, your front sighting, uh, you can uh, develop perceptual narrowing or tunnel vision. Absolutely, and your, um, your vision uh, also is your brain is interpreting the signals and what your brain is saying, okay, you're sitting there watching the sunset, you don't have tunnel vision, you're, you have peripheral vision, you're looking at the whole sky, you're looking at the way the sun is lighting up the clouds on the left and the clouds on the right, uh, that's what we would call a very a broad uh, visual focus. And when the intruder comes in, you now are looking at just that one person. Uh, and that's a very narrow that's focus of attention, and the popular term for it is tunnel vision. And all it is is that you are narrowing your focus of attention to be laser-like on one thing because you're desperately trying to figure out who is this person, what are they doing here, I'm under threat, I need to forget about everything else in my entire environment except what is this person doing. And all your brain is doing is simply modulating its focus of attention based on the task. Uh, And so it's, it's not anything bizarre or weird that's just the brain taking care of business and uh, so there's all kinds of things can happen depth perception can get off Uh, people can get confused about things so it's a really the brain doesn't really care about you having completely accurate memory it doesn't really care about that all your brain is concerned about is your survival and if the brain uh, gets depth perception messed up or it doesn't notice what's going on around it and so on and so forth. These are things, of course, that the criminal justice system wants to know. You know, I, it dismays me still uh, when officers or citizens, and this happens to citizens as well, they get involved in an incident, uh, they, they, go, they uh, give a statement, uh, blah, 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 and it's almost inevitable that their statement does not perfectly line up with the uh, physical evidence and right. or other witness statements I mean, or, or like the cc the- right like the cctv or the body cam or the dash exactly. cam i, exactly. I get that frequently in my in my yeah. investigations let me share something yeah. a couple of things that happened with me and my officer involved shooting and it's the only time during my career uh that i had these particular uh dynamics take place with me and uh, i was in just a a whole bunch of high-risk assignments uh, while I was with the San Jose PD. But let me tell you what happened in my shooting uh, that has never changed uh, at all. Uh, Number one, I can never uh, experience that replay at real-time motion. Everything is in slow motion. And believe me, I've relived this thing a million times. uh, And every single time that I relive it, two things happen. 
Number one, it's very slow, and I can almost see the bullet leaving the muzzle of my gun and flying forward towards the suspect. That's number one. Number two is that I can only see it in black and white. So I lost my rods and cones during that incident temporarily. Right. Yeah, and so at the probably at that moment in time, uh, your brain was making adjustments, and, and slow motion time is something that's very commonly experienced by people in sudden high-stress events. And I think uh, probably your brain is uh, uh, speeding up the processing so much uh, that to you it feels like the world is slowing down, when in fact it's actually your brain is just uh, processing information probably at a much more rapid rate. So it's, it's really operating on all 24 cylinders at that point, desperately trying to figure out what's going on and what am I going to do now. Well, I appreciate, so I appreciate that diagnosis because, uh, you know, obviously I went later and started, you know, reading everything I could uh, to figure out what happened to me. And that's exactly uh, what all the research uh, articles and books that I have read uh, were telling me. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that from you. It's very common, and you know, we even experience in our daily life. Um, if you are engaged in a very, very absorbing task, it uh, doesn't matter what it is. Maybe you're uh, writing an article or you're out in the garage trying to fix a piece of equipment or whatever it is. We all have had the experience where we get so absorbed in this uh, very engaging task that we think 10 minutes has passed. And, you know, finally, when we're finished with whatever we're doing or you know, the phone rings or whatever, or our spouse comes in and says, uh, excuse me, uh, are you ever going to come in and uh, have dinner? Uh, you kind of wake up with a start and, and you realize an hour and a half has gone by. Well, that and happens to, you, to me fact, every day, every day. Yeah, exactly. And, every and day. You've, you completely lost track of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Doc, let's uh, take a break for a second and we'll come back with a fascinating discussion on human factors. I'm talking with uh, Dr. Alexis Artwald. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli. You're listening to A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, at Amazon.com. On a wintry February morning in the city of Cleveland, Ohio, a black teenager, well, he wasn't even quite a teenager, he was 12 years old, by the name of Tamir Rice, was walking down the street. It was a very cold day, there was snow on the ground, and it had been snowing that day, and Tamir was dressed in heavy clothing, heavy padded down kind of clothing. And Tamir, for a 12-year-old African-American boy, was quite big. He was in fact 5'9 and weighed over 170 pounds. Tamir 
had obtained an airsoft six caliber plastic pellet gun that is fired with CO2. The gun had previously had a red safety cap on the end of it, which is what the law in the United States is to so that police officers can recognize a fake gun from a real gun. He traded a cell phone for this gun and was removing or had removed the red cap even though his brother and sister at the time told him not to do that. He was walking down the street with the loaded gun and firing at passing vehicles and four different people called in a black male adult with a semi-automatic pistol firing at vehicles that were parked and driving by on the street. At that same moment, a patrol car with that was an FTO unit, a field training officer, and his recruit, who'd only been on the department for one week, with prior law enforcement experience, was just a couple of blocks away. Tamir Rice went from the sidewalk up into the park and there was a covered gazebo but there were bushes and everything that obstructed the view of anybody approaching rice and this is the direction that the officers took so the officers were driving down the street and they weren't driving fast they were only going about 20 miles an hour and then were driving through the parking lot and the parking lot was frozen and there was ice on the pro parking lot and the grass adjacent to the parking lot was also frozen and created an extremely slick and icy surface. Tamir Rice saw the officers long before the officers saw Rice and the officers weren't looking up towards the gazebo they were looking on the sidewalk where Rice had been reported. The patrol car left the pavement of the parking lot and entered into the park grass and that's when Tamir Rice suddenly appeared. The police car that was only going now about 12 miles an hour skidded to a stop but continued to slide closer and closer to Tamir Rice. The rookie was riding in the shotgun seat which is the right front passenger seat he immediately exited the car that had stopped and yelled out to Rice who was reaching towards his waistband that was covered over by his jacket don't do it don't go for the gun and Rice then produced the semi-automatic pistol which was not a real pistol but an airsoft but the officer had only a second and a half from the time he first saw Rice make the move to the time that Rice produced the gun and the officer fired two rounds, one round striking Rice in the abdomen causing a serious abdominal arterial bleed and Rice went down. Rice died from exsanguination or a loss of blood on the way to the hospital and the officers were prosecuted they were both fired but they the officer was eventually acquitted so Dr. Artwall let's have a discussion using that as our foundation and talk about things such as action reaction perception lag time and also the reactionary gap sure the 
uh, it, it's really self-evident. You don't need a lot of complicated research. I mean, this is very, very obvious to us in our daily life that when you have two people uh, and one initiates a, an activity and you're expected to respond to that, you're always going to be behind the curve uh, because you, the other person decides when the activity is going to start. And, you know, there's all kinds of games with that, like, you know, you, you hold up a, a dollar bill and the person's supposed to grab it when you drop it. And, you know, it's, you, it looks, all these kinds of little uh, action reaction games that we play are demonstrations of the fact that what looks simple, an easy task to do isn't if someone else is deciding when the action is going to start. And that's because right, it, because action is always faster than reaction. Always, always, because, uh, you, you know, the person initiating the activity uh, has control of the pace of the event, and the person who has to respond to that they're, first, they have to pay attention to what's going on. Then they have to perceive it. Then their brain has to interpret it. What do I think that means? And then their brain has to send a signal to the muscles. All of that takes time. And uh, the action-reaction gap is extremely real. It cannot be overcome. That's just physics. That's just how the world operates. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you are going to... Uh, that's why you know we need a lot more training on the fact that what gets suspects killed by the police is their refusal to comply with officer commands and doing things sudden movements pulling a toy gun pulling a real gun whatever they're going to do that is signaling to the officer i'm uncooperative i'm threatening and uh, i am taking or getting ready to take an action that it could seriously harm you or another person and um, you know the more you can anticipate what you think that person is going to do and respond to it the better are your chances of survival so that that's just that's just the reality we, there's nothing that we can do to overcome that well you know uh, the, I was involved uh, obviously this was one of my cases and uh, you know this uh, it, just putting this out for the listeners uh, the case is Tamir Rice T-A-M-I-R, Rice, common spelling. And you can easily Google, if you go on to uh, YouTube, you can easily Google the closed-circuit uh, surveillance television film of this encounter between the officers and Tamir Rice. As a matter of fact, you can Google back and see Tamir Rice uh, shooting, pointing and shooting the gun on the sidewalk uh, before he walked over and... Uh, was standing over in the gazebo so you can literally watch this entire thing unfold uh, but you know alexis the thing that was bothersome to watch is how the media uh, tried to portray a false narrative which often happens you know i wrote a, a complete book about it called the the truth behind the black lives matter movement and the war and police that is also available on amazon and i break down the the tamir rice case there and what they did with the tamir rice case is they did pretty much the same game that they played in the trayvon martin george zimmerman case which was also one of my cases number one 12 year old boy 
with a with a fake gun or a play gun a plastic gun is what they put out there and i handled this gun uh, i've got photographs of the gun and by the way you can google the photographs of the gun and you cannot tell the difference between that gun and a real gun it's sight and if anybody that understands airsoft guns which we use in police training all the time they look exactly like a real gun they function exactly like a real gun they have magazines like a real gun the slide operates like a real gun it makes noise a little bit like a 22 short when the co2 comes out of it and it drops a magazine and you can reinsert the magazine into the gun just like a real gun the distance between the officer and Tamir was about 10 to 12 feet and like I said he only had a second and a half to make a you know use force not use force is that a real gun is it a fake gun you know decision and the thing that was interesting is that everybody thought that Tamir Rice when they saw him because he was such a big kid and dressed obviously in winter clothing which makes you look like you weigh even more uh they kept putting it out even the emt the paramedic uh, when he radioed it in he radioed it in as a black male 19 years old with a gunshot wound so you can just sort of see how these you know false narratives occur and the perception uh, that is created which is an unfair perception that police officers should know this stuff in a second and a half you should have known it was a fake gun you should have known he was 12 years old and those things are very difficult to try to explain uh, to a very skeptical media or a very you know skeptical jury they're easy to explain if people are willing to have an open mind and listen to the facts and not rush to judgment and have political and emotional agendas. Right, and, 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 as, and as forensic experts, like you and me, we can't have a dog in the fight. We have right. to, we, we are advocacy, and I've mentioned this before on a thread of evidence, we're different from attorneys. Attorneys are advocates and they advocate for entities or people. We don't do that. We advocate for forensic facts and evidence. And every case is what it is. Every case has got good things about it and every case has got bad things about it. But every case also has a lot of things that even professionals like us can't determine. Right. That's exactly right. There's and pe people think you know it's not it's not like on TV where you know the hotshot detectives come in and have the whole thing figured out in 15 minutes, uh, as, as is typical in most of these cases. There's always little bits and pieces where no one is exactly sure what happened during that half a second or this second or whatever because you have differing eyewitness testimonies. Uh, you don't have clear forensic evidence that will tell you exactly what happened. Um, so yeah, investigating these things is quite difficult. Uh, one of the things I learned right out of the starting gate when I started working with officers involved in shootings uh, 30 years ago is how much the media gets it wrong. And uh, it was pretty clear that uh, not only were they uh, getting it wrong, sometimes it was my opinion they were willfully getting it wrong. And that's why we will see these cases where there's this huge outcry, the Tamir Rice cases one, but then we also have, you know, the, the very high profile cases like uh, Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman, where there's this huge outcry 
of, oh, this is horrible and it's terrible, you know, and this person belongs in jail and blah, blah, blah. And then time after time after time, uh, it turns out that once an actual jury hears the real evidence, guess what? There's no indictment. Right. And that's exactly what happened uh, in the Trayvon Martin case with George Zimmerman. Actually, right. when you take a look at the forensic evidence, and, and and by the way, that happens to be chapter one in my book. But when right. you take a look at the forensic evidence, I think you will agree the forensic evidence was pretty simple, wasn't it? I mean, there was nothing, com- there was nothing complex about that case. Exactly. Exactly right. And uh, yeah. so, so, so there, there's way too much rushing. To, I talk about this in my book as well. I, I discuss this at, at various points in my book as well, uh, and your book will be a great resource for that. Uh, is you know, rush to judgment, uh, make things are based on emotion and politics. Correct. And uh, you know, you got to feel badly for the officers and the citizens who get caught up in that. And everyone should be extremely concerned because it could happen to you. Right, exactly right. You know, what we try to say is that you want to have a, a factual and a forensic investigation and not an emotional or an, exactly. ad, an advocate investigation. Right. But, you know, right. Alexis, this is a great time uh, because you opened the door to this, and I want to walk through it. Let's talk about Dr. Alexis Artwall. How did you decide that, you know, this was going to be your shtick, this was going to be your wheelhouse, this was your area area of uh of, of study, and you've just uh, become such a remarkable go-to expert in the law enforcement, legal, and forensic community. Just let's let's spend a couple of minutes and talk about how all that took place. I didn't choose it. Uh, fate chose me, and the officers adopted me. And it, it probably started when I did my internship at the San Francisco VA Medical Center. This is back in the 80s, uh, and I started working with a lot of combat veterans. And uh, when I got to m- do my postdoctoral residency up in Portland, Oregon, I continued to do volunteer work at the Vietnam Veterans Outreach Centers uh, to try to help veterans. And of course, I got a lot of training and experience from the veterans on combat and how it impacts people and so on and so forth. And so I, I thought that how people handle trauma is really interesting. So I would go to conferences and get more training on that. And one day I happened to meet uh, the chaplain of the Portland, Oregon Police Bureau. And he was at that time in charge of uh, sending officers for their traumatic incident debriefings when they've been involved in shootings. And when he heard about my experience with combat vets, he said, well, gee, it sounds like a good fit. Could I send some officers to go see you? So he sent some officers to see me, and uh, that's how it got started. And I, I was really interested in the work they were doing. I hit it off with the officers. Uh, they were, I was taught that uh, soldiers and officers wouldn't want to work with me because I'm not a copper soldier. I'm one of those uh, pesky shrinks, and uh, I'm also a, a female. And I discovered that that wasn't true at all. The officers and the soldiers were more interested in, uh, do you know what you're doing? Mm -hmm. Do you care? And can you help me? And once we got over that little hurdle, uh, and I I loved working with the cops and the soldiers because they have very finely tuned BS detectors. (laughs) uh, And they can spot a phony a mile away. And I was genuinely interested in what they were doing. 
and how I got into training is uh, the officers who had come to see me said, gee, I wish I'd known this before I got involved in my shooting. Would you please come in to in-service training and teach my fellow officers? So one thing led to another. And, uh, you know, basically they, they invited me, kind of dragged me into their world. And uh, I realize now that uh, the faith definitely put me there, and that's what I was meant to do. Well, that's fantastic. Listen, we're going to have to unfortunately bring our show to a close, but uh, Alexis, would you please give out the name of your book again so that our people can can just take a note and uh, you can give them kind of an idea when you think, no pressure there, but uh, when you think that that book might be available. It will be available sometime later on this year on Amazon at the title will be Deadly Force Encounters Second Edition or Deadly Force Encounters 2 and I'm co-writing it with my co-author Lauren Christensen and Lauren is a very prolific author he has his own uh, page on Amazon.com so I encourage everybody to check it out because Lauren has lots of fantastic books he's a retired um, police officer a martial arts expert and he wrote a fantastic book called policing saigon about his experience as an mp at the height of the vietnam war in saigon well that's fantastic listen you're listening to dr ron martinelli forensic criminologist and my special guest today dr alexis artwall a licensed and clinical psychologist and behaviorist on a thread of evidence on america out loud